On this week's episode of Isolated But Not Alone, we're going to talk about Virginia Satir and her experiential therapy. On the previous week's podcast, we had introduced symbolic experiential therapy, and we had discussed the two big proponents and theorists within that type of therapy, and that was Carl Whitaker and Virginia Satir. And we discussed Carl Whitaker's version of this type of therapy. We discussed him as being brash and brazen and kind of shooting at the hip type of mentality and his statements that methodology or technique is what the therapist uses for the first so many years until the true therapist has the guts to come forward. And we kind of talked about how he did therapy. And then we ended and concluded with just a brief discussion on Virginia Satir's emphasis on communication and specifically her five communication styles. So today we're going to pick up there and continue to talk about Virginia Satir. So stay tuned. Hi, this is James Raines, and you're listening to Isolated But Not Alone, a podcast that seeks to bring mental health awareness to rural and isolated communities. I just wanted to take this time to let you know that this and other content produced by James Raines is not therapy and is not intended to be therapy or to replace therapy. Nothing in this podcast indicates or creates a therapeutic relationship. Please consult with your therapist or seek one in your area if you are experiencing any type of mental health symptoms. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as specific life advice, and it is simply for the purpose of education. Welcome back to Isolated But Not Alone. On this week's episode, we're going to be discussing Virginia Satir and her version of experiential therapy. Today, I'm sitting in my office and I'm enjoying a nice cup of tea as I sit down and I discuss this type of therapy. And this is a therapy that I practice myself in the office as part of my more eclectic or integrated style. And I find it has a tremendous amount of value. And it can be challenging to do this type of therapy. As sometimes it goes against some of the more modern techniques that I feel were indoctrinated into me as a younger college student taking courses in psychotherapy. And what I mean by that is, is that sometimes some of the ways they view the client, some of the interventions seem to be in contradiction or incongruent with other ways of seeing the client and other interventions that were taught to me in college. And so with that in mind, I want to kind of explore some of those inconsistencies, some of those incongruencies with you so that you can get an idea of what I mean. And I know I had brought this up briefly in a previous podcast, but one of these incongruencies that seems to show up is the integration of Carl Whitaker's battles that he felt needed to be won within the therapy session versus a more client-centered approach. Now, I know that there are folks out there that do not see this disparity because they have adapted the system in order to find a happy medium between those two ideologies about therapy. And that can be done, and it can be very tedious to kind of sometimes find that middle ground and or to continually keep that middle ground 
with the complexity of each individual client that comes in. Because individual therapy in and of itself is extremely complex. Family therapy takes that to a different level and adds complexity from other family members as well as the individual. And when I think about that, you know, I think from a systems down versus an individual into systems. So I know that's not kind of complex, but what I mean by that is simply this, is that when I see an individual, because of my training and experience, I see them in a system, whether they are there for family therapy, couples therapy, or just individual therapy. And so that's my basis of how I view the client. Whereas some folks do not have that training and may only see the client as the individual and only acknowledge the system, but not necessarily place emphasis on it. So just to back up a little bit, client-centered therapy was developed by a humanistic psychologist, Carl Rogers, during the 1940s and 1950s. And Carl Rogers believed that people are the best experts on their own lives and their own experiences. And he believed that people had desire to fulfill the potential and become the best that they could be. And this kind of ties in a little bit with Adlerian psychotherapy and his individual therapy, where he believed that people were trying to strive towards strength. Carl Rogers' therapy allowed clients to fulfill their potential by relying on their own strengths. His therapy was very non-directive, and he felt that talk therapy could allow the client to come to insights in their life, and those insights were powerful enough to cause lasting change. And again, his goal is to be as non-directive as possible, even as much so as trying to work on the way that he felt that therapists guide clients, even in subtle ways. And he also connected the fact that therapists and clients develop this relationship where clients often look to their therapist for some type of guidance or direction. And now as I describe this a little bit, you can see how in contrast this is to Carl Whitaker's form of therapy, where it's very directive. And you may see how there's some incongruency, some disconnect between this way of viewing therapy and Carl Whitaker's battles, where he felt that one of the battles was the battle for structure, which the therapist needed to win. So not only was there a battle, but it was a battle where the therapist needed to have victory over the client. And what I have seen as I have experienced this and gained experience in this is that the tendency is for a more modern client-centered approach where there is no directives. Even to the point where you are trying to be cautious at all times about things you might be doing in the session that might somehow be subtly directing the client to a theory where direction is one of the strongest suits, at least in the battle for structure. And what I have kind of seen is that when the client is dictating, for example, how much or how often they want to come into therapy, what can happen is they can work against their own goals because resistance Resistance to change, resistance to the therapeutic process comes out in minimizing the amount of therapy that they need to come to. And then the therapist finds themselves in this struggle between these two types of systems. Because on the one hand, they feel that they need to have that structure 
because it creates that therapeutic relationship, sustains it while helping the client and coaching the client to meet their goals that they set. Because even in this therapy, the client is still responsible. Again, that's the battle for initiative. They're still responsible for the change that occurs, for what happens in and out of the session. But what can happen is with that client-centered focus is you can get that kind of mixed up and then they are in control and they have won both battles. And oftentimes resistance comes up through that process by minimizing the amount of times they come into therapy. And the therapist, again, is in that precarious place because then they have to decide how to address that issue. And oftentimes by that point, confrontation has to be the method to address that situation, which then goes back full circle because with confrontation, especially with something like that, it can heap a great deal of shame and guilt upon the client and maybe even further cause them to have symptoms or whatever the issue is that they are dealing with or issues. Now, there's way more experts out there that know way more about this than me. And they could probably tell you a hundred different ways of how they have solved this issue. And they might even look at it from a different lens and say, there is no issue between the two. And that you can easily do both and there's no inconsistency. And so I always enjoy when people provide feedback to help me to grow in my knowledge and perception and experience. All right, so now... After we discussed that, kind of, so that's just kind of the, some of the inconsistencies between the two systems. And that's why there's different models and ways. And I know there's all kinds of different terms that people use. And I don't want to get all caught up in the terms because there's multiple terms to discuss the various interventions and models and theories and, you know, theories that form the basis for other theories that form the basis for a particular intervention. I don't want to get into all that per se, but I want to kind of shift from that to Virginia Satir. So Virginia Satir is very different than Carl Whitaker. And I know I've described a little bit about her, that she's very much a maternal figure, a motherly figure. And last time we left off about talking about her types of communication. And I have two of her books here right now, right in front of me. And they are excellent books. And I always say, don't take my word for it. The folks who have done a lot of these theories have written books about them. And all the books have really good information. And that's kind of the thing with books is that, and theories, is that when we read them, we read them with our lens, our perspective. And that directs what information we focus in on and what information we discard. And we all do this. Human beings do this. You're probably listening right now and you can think of times where you've been reading something and something's really clicked and then other parts you're like, eh, and you kind of just skimmed over them. (laughs) That's what I'm talking about here. And so the two books I have in front of me are Step by Step, and this was actually written by Virginia Satira and Michelle Baldwin. And it's just a very interesting uh, book because it dives into how Virginia actually did therapy. And it has like sections where, you know, it has a client first name that I think has been changed to protect their confidentiality. And they'll say something and then they'll say Virginia and she'll respond. And that's how the whole book is set up. So you can see what her therapy actually looked like in dialogue form. It's like you almost get the experience of what it must have felt like to sit in with her in therapy. The other book I have here is The New People Making. This is actually a reprint of her first book, which was People Making. And, you know, it's got like, I think, six extra chapters. And I've never read the actual first volume, so I don't know what the differences would be. 
other than there's apparently six additional chapters. And so this is such a good book to kind of dive into the mind of Virginia Satir and into her theory of experiential therapy. And I mean, it's got chapters like The Rules You Live By, The Couple, Architects of the Family. I know we had talked briefly about that, that that's one of the things she believed was that couples were the architects of their family. She also has other chapter titles I think are excellent, like Self-Worth, The Pot Nobody Watches. <laughs> and remember, these theories are very symbolic. Another one is Self-Worth, The Source of Personal Energy. And this book does an excellent job of kind of going over the proponents of her theory and kind of the practical applications of her therapy. And again, it's very different from the book I mentioned a few podcasts ago, The Family Crucible um, by Carl Whitaker and Gus Napier. It's very different than that. It's very different in how Carl Whitaker does therapy, and yet there's similarities with the overall belief of the family. So there was an excellent article done by Good Therapy, written by Blake Griffin Edwards, that really ties into and summarizes kind of all the things I want to talk about, about Virginia Satir, very briefly in the remaining time we have left on this podcast. So her method kind of revolved around two things, family life chronology, which was an understanding of the developmental patterns and relationships in the family as a basis for change, and what was termed family reconstruction where she attempted to guide families through the process of engaging in change that was positive using interventions like guided fantasy, guided contemplation, hypnosis, psychodrama, family sculpting, parts parties, and role-playing. And that kind of came from some of the books that I just mentioned as well. One of her chief concerns we've discussed before was communication. And Virginia Satira is often quoted a lot in the therapy world because of some of the things that she said. One of the things she said involving communication was, once a human being has arrived on this earth, communication is the largest single factor determining what kinds of relationships she or he makes with others and what happens to each in the world. And there's significance there. And because she had all this focus on communication, she actually developed five conceptual styles of communication. We kind of discussed these before, placating, blaming, computing, distracting, and congruent communication. And I know before I had used terms like avoiding, blaming, computing, and leveling. And I've heard leveling and I've heard congruence. They basically both mean the same thing. She felt that placators act as pleasers and they kind of often cut themselves down. Blamers are self-righteous and they are often accusatory. Uh, computers are emotionally distanced and very intellectual in a rigid way. Distractors are unfocused and they seem to be unable to relate to what's actually being communicated, kind of what's going on in the world. And the congruency or the levelers are people who are expressive, responsible, they're genuine, and they articulate themselves clearly in an appropriate context. So besides that, Virginia Satir utilized these techniques that were very specific to experiential therapy to create new in-session experiences, which allowed families to explore, acknowledge, and modify communication within the sessions. She did things like role plays, family sculpting. And family sculpting is a very unique intervention. Not only have I done it in therapy, but I have done it in my own personal life in therapy. And it's basically where you use the body of someone to kind of create a symbolic representation using their body of feelings and experiences 
as well as the coping stances, the communication stances that a particular person is experiencing. For example, a child might be asked to sculpt what they see or what they imagine is going on when dad is yelling because he's angry. And they might sculpt the the hands to be pointing aggressively in a fist. And what I can tell you about family sculpting is it dives deep into those emotions. Uh, In fact, I'm getting teary-eyed just thinking about it sitting in my office from my own experience of diving deep down into those unpleasant emotions that we imprison inside of us and bring those out to the surface when we see how others experience us, especially in negative ways. Another one is guided contemplation and a parts party. A parts party is very interesting. I've never actually done this. I've only ever seen it done. And it's a group therapy method where group members act as particular parts of a person, and then they interact in this play-like atmosphere. And what I mean by play is like a dramatic representation or performance. Virginia Satir also held four assumptions. The first one was is that all people await the potential of growth and have the ability to transform. Another one was is that people carry all the resources they need for positive growth and development. Remember, experiential therapy. The family is its own healer. Number three, families are systems wherein everyone and everything impacts and is impacted by everything and everyone else. There's reciprocity. I don't even know. Reciprocity? I don't know. I can never pronounce that word. But everything is impacted about everything else. I think of throwing a stone and seeing the ripples, but in this case, they hit something else and ripple back and then ripple this way and ripple that way. Then pretty soon everybody has a wave that's affecting them. And number four, the beliefs of the counselors are important and so much so that they're more important than their techniques. Again, that's kind of echoing that Carl Whitaker statement about methodology, interventions, techniques, or what therapists use when they're novices until the real therapist has the courage to show up. And so I'm going to leave it at that. Uh, There's so much more we could talk about about this theory, but there's so many other theories that we have to talk about, including the next two theories under the umbrella of experiential therapy, which is emotionally focused couples therapy and internal family systems. So stay tuned for that. And remember, you might be isolated, but you're not alone. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this podcast enough to share it with friends and family, and reach out with any questions you might have about mental health, and we will do our best in future shows to answer those questions. And remember, it might feel like you're isolated, and maybe you are, but you're not alone.